Now we're going to open the word together. Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Uh, the more modern variation on that, you see, I, I put it there beneath the, uh, the scripture. You've probably heard the, the quote below, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Uh, that one's attributed to, I've heard it attributed to Lincoln, to Mark Twain, to others. Um, it, it, it certainly is based on the biblical reality that our words and our actions reveal something about who we are. They expose our heart. They tell how we are thinking and who we are, and it's hard to hide who you are for very long. We're seeing that in the book of James. We're in James chapter 3 this morning as we're surveying this book. James writes to people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, and his concern is to call them to live out that faith in Jesus Christ, to not be double-minded, to not be a people who would say one thing, who would profess a faith that is not matched by words and actions. And so what you say and the choices you make are all manifestations of your heart and ultimately what you believe. James 3, we're going to pick up in verse 13 this morning and go to the end of the chapter, although this is, again, one of those places where chapter breaks are not particularly helpful. James 3, 13 down through roughly James 4, 10 is really all one continuous unit that's, that's framed around a series of questions, somewhat rhetorical questions that James will ask and then proceed to expound on a little bit. And the first question you see there in verse 13 of James 3 is, who is wise and understanding among you. He doesn't ask the reverse of that, but he will basically include the reverse of that in his discussion that follows. Who is wise and understanding among you, and who among you is foolish and lacks understanding? Not too many of us are eager to raise our hands to the second part of that and say, that's me, I'm foolish and I lack understanding, but that's exactly what James is going to talk about here. The point of the passage that we're looking at this morning is my way of thinking what, what directs my words and actions, my way of thinking, is rooted in my source of wisdom. That's really where he's going to focus us in on is wisdom. And so this source of wisdom becomes the basis for my thinking, which then subsequently becomes the basis for my actions and my words. Three times in six verses, he discusses wisdom. He mentions this word wisdom we typically think of wisdom or would define wisdom as sort of knowledge applied. I, I know certain facts, but wisdom is, is kind of what I do with those facts. And that's, that's probably right. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the Bible nowhere places much value on knowledge that remains cerebral or creedal. Nothing is known until it also reshapes the life. For this reason, the way of wisdom is the way of obedience. You, you, you see the idea there that it's, it's not... Very much as, as James would say, it's not enough to simply claim to know it, to have it in your head, to even say it in the form of a creed, to profess it in some way. It's a question of whether or not it shapes your life, whether or not it actually affects outcomes in terms of words and actions. An example of wisdom. Wisdom really has to do then with, with how we look at the world, how we interact with God's creation, how we take knowledge and observation and, and begin to draw conclusions about the world around us. And so let me just give you an example, Proverbs 24. And, and just watch as the writer of Proverbs here just sort of walks through a sequence that sort of gets us to what wisdom is. I passed by the field of a sluggard, 
by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. And then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You see the sequence. The, the writer is saying, first thing is I, I observed something in creation. I, I, I looked around and I observed something about the world around me. And in particular, he says, I, I'm looking at this field, this vineyard, and it is overgrown and it has become useless and the walls are broken down. And then he adds, I, I also know some facts about this that I'm observing. I know that it belongs to someone who is, as he says, a, a sluggard, a, a foolish man, somebody who lacks sense, he says in verse 30. And, and so you have observation and knowledge. And then when you see verse 32, it says, then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. So this is really the wisdom phase. This is, the, I've got the, the observation and the knowledge, and now I'm thinking about it in light of what I know, in light of what I believe, in light of instruction I've been given over time. And that's what helps me to draw conclusions. I deliberate about what I know and see filter it through a grid of ultimately what I believe, and I come up with conclusions. And in this case, he, he comes to the place where he says, my mind put this all together, and I concluded that if you are deliberately not working, if you are deliberately lazy, and you will not put yourself to work, then you will likely end up with consequences, which would include poverty. It's the proverb, but the proverb is based on, on wisdom. He's looking at things in a way that he has been instructed in, in a godly way to look at work and provision and all of those things. And so he's got the knowledge and the facts. He's got the, the, the worldview that comes from God's word. And that gives him the wisdom then to make a, a, a conclusion about what it is that he sees. The source of your wisdom, the basis for your deliberation and your conclusions, your your conclusions about life and what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, the source of your wisdom is, is critically important. And that's what James is, is, is really trying to bring us to in this passage. Do you process things through a biblical worldview? In other words, do you, do you look at things the way God has defined them? The way that God says reality is and who I am and, and what God defines as righteousness and sin, do you evaluate that way or do you evaluate it as he will describe here, based on a, an earthly judgment, based on sort of man-made, and in fact, he will go to the length of calling it demonic wisdom, that which would be um, propagated by Satan, just a view of things that is contrary to what God would say. So what is the source of your wisdom? On what authority do you base your conclusions about life, right and wrong, good and evil? Most people use a fairly subjective sort of circumstance-based kind of intuition to, to, to do these sorts of things. Their wisdom is based on, I think, I feel, I've seen others think and feel the same way. This is sort of the popular sentiment, and so I think this is good, I think this is evil, this is right, this is wrong. The type of wisdom that, that actually drives your thinking and leads you to answering those questions is critical and as James will say, it is made evident by your life, by your words and actions. And so James wants us to understand that there is a clear distinction between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. 
There is this wisdom, as he will describe it, wisdom that is from above and wisdom that is from hell. And, and, and James is being very black and white with us here. There's no neutral ground. There's no sort of picking and choosing and saying, well, God's wisdom is really helpful here, but, but not so much here. He, he's wanting to say that what you rely on, what drives your thinking and your decision-making, ultimately will drive your conduct and your actions, and that's why this matters. And so what is your conduct revealing about your source of wisdom? Let me read the whole passage, James 3, 13 through 18. This is that last paragraph in James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By, this, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Two kinds of wisdom. One that comes down from God, the other, he says, is sourced in hell. Two sources of wisdom that are as different as day and night, and this matters because this is life-altering. What you are depending on, where you are getting your wisdom, matters for this life and the life to come. In a letter that routinely confronts double-mindedness, we pointed that out last week, how James emphasizes this. You, you cannot be saying one thing and, and doing something that is opposite of that. He's again making the point that there's no overlap between these two kinds of wisdom. We can't glean insights and sort of pick and choose from one or the other. There is God's wisdom and there is earthly wisdom. And so let me, let me just use a, a, a common example of this that is probably in your face on a daily basis and one that you have to think about. God has designed human beings as male and female and has ordained that sexual intimacy takes place within the boundaries of a lifelong covenant of marriage. I'm not going to do a message on all of that. We did that series a couple of summers ago, so you can go back and, and listen to that if you want to just fill in some of the details. But, but I'll just state that out as what Scripture teaches, that God has created humans, male and female, and sexual intimacy is to be within the boundaries of a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. If I am drawing my wisdom from God, then those those are the principles then that guide me in thinking about this. Those are the principles that stand as this is what is true and this is what God says on this subject. And I cannot integrate man's wisdom into God's wisdom and, and try to soften God's teaching on this in some way and try to change it in some way so that it fits to be more cultural. I, I can't say, well, that's a really good ideal. I, God's, God's design is really good, but... But really, this is where reality is. This is where I'm more comfortable. This is where the world is at. It, it, the common sort of consensus amongst the culture is that the only boundary for sexual intimacy is consent. So long as the people participate in consent, and if they happen to love each other, then all the better. But consent is really the one boundary. And so as a professing Christian, the question then is, what, where will I draw my source of wisdom from? Where will I determine that the, the principles that guide me in decisions about ethics and morality, where will they be based on? What wisdom will they be based on? Because I, I, I can't try to integrate man's wisdom and, and somehow compromise God's wisdom in the process. 
The Bible's really clear about this, that not only is there wisdom from God, but there's fruit from that wisdom. That sort of wisdom leads to a certain kind of thinking and actions, and there's fruit that comes from that, and there's wisdom from hell that has its own fruit. So what is the source of your wisdom? When he starts this in verse 13, he starts with this question, who is wise and understanding among you? And he proceeds then to answer that question. And his first answer is that the one who is wise and understanding among you can be identified by virtue, he says, of good conduct and Conduct that's exercised in meekness or in humility. So the, the first marker he'll set out, and then he'll, he'll come back to it later on in this section, to godly wisdom is good conduct and humility. In a sense, those two are inseparable. I, I, can't, I can't be doing good conduct in an arrogant way. In other words, I can't be saying, Look at me, I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing good, I'm, I'm a really good person, because somehow that doesn't work together. That's not God's design that we do good conduct in a proud, uh, proud way. It, it, the two work together in terms of humility. My good conduct is the result of God's gracious work in me. It, it, it's, a, it, it's something that I give him thanks for, that he is producing good fruit within me. But verse 13 says, a person who relies on godly wisdom has good conduct, a good manner of life. That word for good is the idea of excellence. It's even used in terms of beauty. It's, it's orderly. There's, there's something evident. There's something that is pleasing to God about the conduct of that life because it is good as God has defined it. It is excellent. It is morally upright as God would picture that. It's good as he defines, and it's not being done in a way to show off to others. A person who's truly wise understands that what is good is good because God says it is good, because that, by definition, biblical definition, that's where we understand what goodness is, by what God says is good and that which is evil, and that should govern my conduct. But that person is also to be humble because of the very fact that we are depending on God, not only to set out for us what is good, but he is also the giver of every good gift. He is the one who supplies his Holy Spirit to enable us to do good. Uh, we are not, by nature, good people. Uh, we are rebels against God. And so it's by the work of his Spirit that he empowers us to do good. And so when he speaks about meekness, that's the basis for Christian meekness. It is because we are fully dependent on him to enable us to conduct ourselves in a way that's pleasing to him. So a wise person bows to the Lord's way and seeks to do his will in conduct. That's how James introduces this. He'll come back again to this godly wisdom in verses 17 and 18, but verse 14 then starts with, but. This is strong contrast, verse 14. Now, there's good conduct and meekness, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Verses 14 through 16 will now say, there is another kind of wisdom. There is another source on which people rely for how to conduct life, how to make decisions about right and wrong, and how to proceed through life. And, and that wisdom, immediately he's contrasting. The one, the godly wisdom, the term that he used was meekness, to emphasize humility. Godly wisdom shows us in a, a place of dependence on God for, for teaching us what is good and, and, and causing us to, to act in a good way. So we're humbled before the Lord. The terms he uses, though, for this other kind of wisdom immediately are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He's saying that's the core of this other kind of wisdom. The one is, is relying on God and his word. This one is all about self. Because in fact, when he says there in verse 14, 
if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, the, the, the heart, the, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's talking about the, the, the control center, the, the thinking, the willing, the feeling, all that goes on in the heart that drives the outer behavior. What's spoken from the mouth is, or, uh, is what comes out of the heart. And so what he's saying here is, if, on the other hand, worldly wisdom is what drives you, then what's controlling your heart is, he says, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It is all about pleasing self. It is a resentful envy of, of others. It, it is a looking down on others. It is, a, it is an ambition that says, I want for me what is best as I define it. So you see the contrast. The one is marked by humility because it is entirely dependent on the gracious work of God who is the giver of all things good and is able to say, everything that I have that is good is a gift from his hand. And the other says, I want what I want. That, that, that this is about my pleasure, my desire, my will. And so the person marked by good conduct, as we've already seen in James, is reaching out to others, to serve others, because good, contact, good conduct ultimately is defined by loving God and loving neighbor as self. And so the, the good conduct is that of serving and helping others. The reverse of that, this worldly sort of wisdom, drives me inward to a self-centered, self-directed, what's, what's best for me, and it leads me to conduct that is fiercely self-protective. Earthly wisdom cares about me and it only cares about you to the degree that you care about me. It, it, it will be friends with you and, and get along with you to the degree that you share my interests or that you share in my desires or that you, you sort of enable me in some way. Otherwise, my primary focus is on me. If you're going to interfere with me in some way then in getting what I want and getting my desires, then there's going to be a problem. And that's what we'll see next week when he continues this discussion in chapter 14 and he gets into what, why do you fight with one another? Well, it, it's because I've got these desires for myself and I want them satisfied and this person's getting in my way. But that's next week. Meekness speaks of gentleness, speaks of humility, speaks of, um, of serving others. But the description he gives here, bitter jealousy, speaks of envy and resentment. I, I am consumed with comparing myself to looking at your pictures, your social media, your life, and starting to compare and seeing what you have or seeing what I have that you don't have and feeling proud about that and, and, and thinking myself to be better than you in some way or how you think about life. And, and he describes the, the fruit of this kind of wisdom is sinful comparison, rivalry, dissension, essentially there in verse 16 when he says, where this exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I just want to pause just a minute because we tend to think, in, when we think of envy and ambition, we tend to think Western culture, American culture, we tend to think, think in terms of possessions. We think of this as materialism, and, and it includes that. The, the stuff you have, the car, house, appearance, all of the, the stuff sort of things that we, we tend to compare. That, that's certainly what's included here. But remember, as James writes this, he's writing to people who have been dispersed by persecution. These are people who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, who have lost a lot of their possessions and have very little to their names, much like the, the writer in Hebrews is speaking to those who have lost so much because of persecution. And so 
There's not so much a concern about riches and treasures and comparing what you have and what I don't have. There's clearly, this begs the question then, is what, what is James confronting here? There's, there's clearly another kind of jealousy that can manifest itself within the community, and, and it's matters of pride and arrogance and rigidity. It's the, the, the thinking that says, my way is best. My understanding of this is right. It's the taking of, of preference issues, issues that are not clearly said in Scripture, thou shalt or thou shalt not, but rather we have to sort of draw implications and say this is a preference issue, and it's raising, elevating that preference issue to the point that I'm judging you because you don't follow my preference. You don't worship the same way I worship, sing the same songs I worship. You do stuff different, and so there's this rigid kind of comparison. And so not many of you understand things like I do. I'm more spiritual than you. I'm, I pursue purity better than you. I'm, I'm more concerned about holiness than you seem to be. You seem to be very lax when it comes to holiness. I, I think these are all ways of looking at what he's talking about when he speaks about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It is, I'm right. I look at this more accurately than you do. So it's not just about stuff and wanting to have stuff. I can... I can manifest selfish ambition at home by talking over my wife when we're having a disagreement about something and I decide that if I just lift my voice a little bit, I can speak and now I will be heard whether she's speaking or not. I, that's selfish ambition. That's me being driven by the concern to say, I need to be heard and you will listen if even I, I have to speak louder in order to, to do so. That Greek word for jealousy captures that idea of resentment toward another person. A lot of this echoes back to, to chapter 2 in that section on partiality where, where he's condemning judging others based on sort of superficial things, just sort of attributes about them, skin color, social status, uh, where they live, what they drive, just sort of making judgments about people that are, are very partial in that way and judging them by outer appearance. The, the, he's, he, he's wanting to call us out here on this sort of contentious, divisive sin that he's warning us in terms of how we look at others and how much we, we want to be seen as supreme, how much we want people to look at us and we want to be the, the, the centerpiece. And, and the interesting thing is at the end of it, at the end of verse 14, he says, if you have this in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. He's pointing right back to the whole double-minded issue. What he's saying here is if, if you have this selfishness and, and envy and ambition, what, what you tend to do is you boast. Well, I'm this. I've got this. I'm, I'm special in this way. He says, don't do that because what you're doing then is you are lying. You, you are being false to the truth. You are professing again to be a believer in Jesus Christ and following in the meekness and humility of Jesus Christ and now living completely contrary to that. And so it's yet another warning against double-mindedness. The, the truth of the wisdom that grips your heart will show itself by the conduct of your life. It will either be good conduct and meekness or it will be driven by envy and sinful ambition. Look at verses 15 and 16 again because this is where he, he elaborates on worldly wisdom. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Rather, it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. He's emphatic that when you see this kind of fruit as being ordinary from a person's life, that cannot be from God. 
That is not God's work. That is based on a wisdom that is not from God. And he sternly rebuking that where there is this bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition, that betrays claims of faith. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and yet you are characterized by this compare and contrast and compete with one another sort of attitude and, and sinfully ambitious for, for more and more, then, then he calls that ultimately demonic in nature. He says that, that's exactly the work of Satan. He uses first the word earthly, and, and earthly is just to sort of progression here, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly is to get us to see that this is stuff that is here on earth that, that seems to matter all the world to us. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. What, what, are, the, what are the people, what are the things that, that fill your mind, that consume your thinking, that fill your, your Google searches? I don't mean just shopping for products and stuff, but, but when you're actually, stuff that sort of consumes you, that you're trying to to understand better, that, that matters so much? What is it that you want so much that you despise someone else for withholding it from you in some way? How much are you thinking about God's plan for this other person with whom you're, you're on the verge of rivalry or comparison with? How much are you thinking about God's design for that person, what God's will is for that person or that thing that you want? If I am primarily determined to protect my own interest, to get my way, or to make sure my voice is heard, that is sourced in earthly wisdom. If, if my primary driver is to make sure that you hear me, that, that I get what I want, something's wrong. And James not only says that that's earthly, he says it's unspiritual. It, it, it has nothing to do with God's eternal priorities. It's about what you can get for yourself in this moment. And, and ultimately, he says this is demonic. It's the kind of thinking the devil is cheering for in our lives and working for. Focusing on, on me and my wants and my needs and resenting those who either have more than me, looking down on those who have less than me, or being unkind toward those who aren't being caring about me, who aren't just focused on, on satisfying my needs. It's all demonic wisdom. It is selfish ambition. And the outcome, he says in verse 16, is chaos and trouble. It, it, Ryan alluded to this during the offering prayer when he, from 1 Timothy chapter 2. One of the reasons we pray for our leaders, our governing authorities, is that they would come to a knowledge of the truth and so that consequently we could live peaceful lives. Godly wisdom leads to that sort of peaceful, orderly, sort of following God response. And what he's saying is the opposite is there is disorder and every vile practice that comes when you are driven by envy and selfish ambition and you embrace things that in God's design are worthless. Take the attitude that I, I know this may not mean anything for eternity, but boy, it sure would make me feel good right now. And that's what I want. I want my way in this moment. And that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom, and it creates disorder and every vile practice. Let me read on, and because and, that will develop more even in chapter 4, the, the conflict that results. But verse 17, but, but the wisdom from above, and now he'll list eight traits, is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The, I, I think the temptation from verses 15 and 16 when we read those 
is to go, well, that is certainly not my kind of wisdom. My wisdom is not demonic in nature. I am not consumed with worldly things. Okay, fair enough. Verses 17 and 18 say, so is your life consumed by these things? Here's better the, the, the question now to, to measure by. Here's the diagnostic question. Does your life look like verse 17? Not just does it not look like verses 15 and 16, but are you actually living out these traits? Because again, we're not to be double-minded, saying one thing but acting like another. And so James then lists these traits. The first one that he gives is purity. The wisdom from above is first pure. Um, he's talking about ethical purity. He's talking about moral purity. It, it went back in the end of James chapter 1 when he said religion that is pure and undefiled, un, unstained, is that which is ministering to widows and orphans in their need. But he's defining purity as that which is not stained by sin, not stained by um, disobeying God. And so the, the, the language that he uses throughout the book of James is often graphic. He talks about evil words that, that stain the body. He urges us to put away all filthiness. We don't sometimes speak in that language when it comes to sin, and yet that's the way Scripture speaks, to put away all filthiness. It's rampant wickedness. He's writing this bluntly because he says, you, you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What has Jesus Christ given to you? He has imputed his, his righteousness to you, his, his, his right standing, and he has given you his Holy Spirit. And his Spirit is in you to produce fruit of righteousness, produce fruit of holiness. And so if, if holiness and purity are not things that matter to you in everyday living, then, then, then you are living contrary to what you profess. And, and that's not the wisdom that is from above. Purity, secondly, he says we are to pursue peace. We are to be a people who love peace. If, probably once or twice a week now, I, I, I say to myself, I'm, I'm going to get off Twitter and I'm not going to follow Twitter anymore. And then I see some cute dog thing or some auto racing thing or some other sports thing that I think, oh, that's really cool. And I stay on Twitter. But, but I'm amazed at how often when I'm on Twitter, and you may experience this too, that you know, the news of the day kind of stuff comes through and it's just video of some kind of violence, just some kind of cell phone recorded violence, and you are appalled at, at, at what you're seeing in that moment. And it, it, it feels much like we're 2,000 years ago, sort of in the, the Roman Colosseum, just that kind of bloodthirsty. It, th these things so often not only happen publicly, but they're egged on in some way by bystanders who just stand there sort of encouraging this. The wisdom from above finds that to be detestable because we, we love peace. We love that which is, is, is bringing people together and is not stirring up and agitating chaos. The, the wisdom from above urges us to de-escalate, to, to when we're in situations where tensions are rising and things are becoming difficult, we're to be the peacemakers in that. We're to be the ones who are finding ways to, to, to bring some level of civility to the conversation and humility. It's not, it's not peace at any price. That doesn't mean we just shut our mouths and not speak the truth when it needs to be spoken. But it is, as far as it depends on you, Romans 12 says, live at peace with all men. Still act toward them in a gracious and humble way. Seek to promote that which is peaceful and not that which takes a spark of disagreement and elevates it into a massive conflict. Purity, peace, third is gentleness. He says to be gentle. 
Again, we're following Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the one who in Matthew 11 said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. So Jesus describes himself as gentle. James uses a slightly different Greek word for gentle, but it's the idea of, of soothing, of, of forbearing, of, of being patient. This is, again, similar to, to peaceable, the person who works to bring the volume down. Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. That is godly wisdom at work. That is a situation where somebody's already saying something contentious to me, and I return back with a gentle answer, something that actually sort of stumps them in that moment and is meant to turn away wrath because it's, it, it's thinking in ways that are soft and helpful to that person. Fourth, Fourth one here is translated several different ways. Um, ESV says open to reason. Uh, others say open to persuasion, compliant, reasonable. Think back to James 1.19 where the command is be quick to listen. Remember we talked about that? The, the idea of being eager to want to hear you. I don't just want to speak but I want to pause and slow down and hear what you have to say, being quick to listen. I think that's very much what he has in mind here when he talks about being open to reason, open to persuasion. It's not, it's not sinful passivity. It's I'm eager to hear what you say and to learn from you. I'm, I'm humble enough to want to listen and to believe that you have something worthwhile to say and something that will help me in some way. That is meekness in action. Next two kind of go together. First of them is full of mercy. This is compassion. God's wisdom drives me to those in need. God's wisdom causes me to want to move toward those who are suffering, toward those who are broken, and, and to do so with compassion. But the fact that he couples it then with full of mercy and good fruit tells us that it's not just merciful feelings it's not just that I feel compassion and I feel sorry for you, but full of good fruit says I also seek to serve you. Is there a way that I can actually be hands and feet and do something that shows compassion and reaches out and sacrifices and ministers in some way? Last two are also a pair grammatically. They may not look like it. It says impartial and sincere. In the Greek, these are the two negatives in this, impartial and sincere. It would be not, not discriminating and not pretending. Impartial is not discriminating. Sincere is not pretending. Again, this, this should echo back to James 2 and, and the making of judgments. What he's saying here is if you're not judging by appearance or some other superficial factor, you are being impartial. And if you are speaking openly and genuinely and not sort of hypocritically, then you are being sincere. The warning back in, in chapter two is superficial judgments or hypocritical sort of judgments, or even, even saying one thing and meaning another, publicly applauding you, privately despising you, really wishing the worst on you, even if in front of others I say nice things and congratulate you on that promotion, while internally I'm thinking you did not deserve that at all, and, and I'm thinking evil thoughts. He's saying impartial and sincere. It's not discriminating. It's not pretending. It's, it's speaking in such a way that people know that what they hear from you is genuine and true. As, as those who follow the wisdom of God, we are to deal genuinely and honestly with others. Our actions should promote peace, should unite people. They should know that we love them as God has called us to and not be wondering 
is this person really being double-minded? Are they just doing this because they have to, because others are watching, or is this really who they are? Last thing he does in verse 18 is he, he brings all of this exhortation into sort of an incentive, a reward, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those who strive together to be peacemakers, those who humbly bow before God and, and, and follow his design for good, which means being merciful and generous toward others and impartial and sincere, there is a harvest that comes from that because that is, that is God's design. Just like Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, we're called to obedience, but we do so trusting that God is also the one who continues to, to bring about the, the fruit in all of that. God is the one who, who brings about the transforming fruit. One, one writer put it this way, the effects of these traits of wisdom is peace and righteousness for the family of God. If earthly wisdom brings strife, the wise man brings unity and peace. As we live out what we've been called to in verse 17, then, then God, by his goodness, is, is working in us by his spirit to continue to produce a harvest out of that, a, a harvest of righteousness, of that which is pleasing to God and that which is good for other people. Those who live by earthly wisdom are driven, he's, he's already said, by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Those who are led by godly wisdom they bring blessing because they actively love as Jesus did. So let me just give you some questions to end with just to, to think about as you think about this passage. Are, are you a peacemaker? Are you someone who in difficult situations is the one who is, is able to speak well into that? Are you, are you quick to confess your own wrongdoing? That's part of peacemaking is being humble enough to say, okay, I blew it here. I, I, what I said was wrong. What I did was not helpful. That's pursuing peace. It's acknowledging my own sin and asking for your forgiveness. Are you loving purity and rejecting the stains that, that, that the, the sin that stains and defiles? Culture like ours, we are surrounded by impurity. Do you love purity enough to stand and, and, and even be treated poorly for that, to pursue what is holy and right before God? Are you gentle toward others? Are you merciful toward those in need? Does that mercy then bear itself out in good fruit, that, that people benefit from the fruit of your conduct? And then even more importantly, does that good conduct extend to others who are different from you? Brothers and sisters who you don't know well, but they're not part of your sort of circle, they seem different, are, are you showing impartiality and sincerity toward them? Do they know that they will be genuinely loved by you? They should, that, that's our calling as a people who strive to live by the wisdom from above. And that's, that's how God graciously wants to equip us to live by his wisdom so that our thoughts and conduct would demonstrate purity and peacefulness and gentleness. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for putting before us, as, as so often is clear in scripture, these sorts of clear contrasts between that which is true and right according to the wisdom that you have given and that which is counter to your wisdom, which is of the world. Father, thank you that we are not left to sort of blindly figure this out, but that your instruction is clear. This is what you have called us to, and this is what you seek to bless us with. 
is the enjoyment of the fruit of this kind of living. Help us, help us, we pray, to, to be a people who, when surrounded by wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic and as tempting as it may seem and as common as it may seem, cause us to be a people who would, who would put in the, the, whatever sacrifice is needed to, to battle the sinful desires and to seek after godly wisdom, to strive for that which is pure and peaceable and, and gentle. Lord, we thank you for the, the work of your spirit. This is not something that we are, some measure, some, as so many of these, these lists in the New Testament, sometimes, Lord, we, we see these and they feel daunting as if it's just a list of things that are bound to show me as a failure. And yet these things are put before us not to, not to bring us to a point of despondency, but to show us that you are eager to help us to cause us to live this way, that this is who we are in Christ and this is who you empower us to be. And so help us to rest in you and rely on you to to live in a way that is counter to the culture around us, counter to our own inherent nature that, that desperately needs the ongoing work of your spirit and your word. Father, I pray that if anyone here this morning is just feeling overwhelmed with that sense of just worldly wisdom, that jealousy and envy and resentment and sinful ambition and, um, Lord, feeling convicted by that. I, I thank you that you are a gracious God who, if we will turn to you and confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Uh, I, I pray, Lord, for any in here this morning that need to turn to you in, in repentance and seek your forgiveness, that they would know in full measure the, the bounty of your grace. Lord, thank you for being merciful to us as sinners. Thank you for rescuing us from this wisdom that is earthly in nature. And help us now that so we seek to live by that which is pleasing to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.